Welcome to the 543rd episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for joining me. I'm taking a week off for family time this week. As a result, I decided to air an encore of one of our most popular shows of 2023. Drumroll. That is the Cornell Johnson EMBA program, four options for the largest executive MBA program in the United States. I chose this episode not only because of its popularity, but because it's a fascinating exploration of a well-established large EMBA program with four distinct flavors. If you're considering an executive MBA, you really need to listen to this podcast. And if you think you may want an EMBA in the future or are debating going for the MBA now or waiting a few years and then getting an executive MBA, you'll learn a ton in this episode. If you like this episode and want to learn more about executive MBA admissions, please download ACE the Executive MBA. That's Accepted's free guide to EMBA admissions. Again, you can get your free copy from accepted.com slash aceemba. Again, that's accepted.com slash A-C-E-E-M-B-A. Thanks as always for listening to Admission Straight Talk. I'll talk to you again and another fascinating guest next week. In the meantime, here is the Cornell Johnson EMBA program, four options for the largest executive MBA program in the United States. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. It gives me great pleasure to have, for the first time on a Mission Straight Talk, Dean Mark Nelson, the Ann and Elmer Linseth Dean and Professor of Accounting at Cornell Johnson Graduate School of Management, and Dr. Manoj Thomas, Senior Director of EMBA and MSBA programs, and the Nakashimato Professor of Marketing, also at Cornell Johnson Graduate School of Management. Dr. Nelson and Dr. Thomas, welcome to Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Linda. Delighted to be here. And I'm delighted to have you both. Now, I'd like to start with some general questions about the Cornell Johnson EMBA programs and then move into a couple of admissions questions. Cornell Johnson has four distinct EMBA options. Dean Nelson, what makes a Cornell Executive MBA program different from other EMBA programs? That's a great question, Linda. I mean, first off is the fact that we have these four different flavors of a Cornell MBA. And uh, that's very intentional. It's it's been developed over time. We started initially with our Metro EMBA program, which is based in New York City, and which is focused on a general management EMBA, uh, providing that jurisdiction, uh, that market. Uh, second, then we have our Americas EMBA program, and that's a, a really unique program where we're reaching out to executives throughout the Americas using uh, our own uh, unique approach to distributed learning. And then third, we uh, created an FMBA program, a collaboration with Tsinghua University, a finance-focused EMBA, and that's bilingual and offered in, in Beijing. And then fourth, we have our MBA, MS, and healthcare leadership program, which is providing both an EMBA and also an MS in healthcare uh, from two great institutions, the Johnson School and Wild Cornell Medicine. And, and so I, I go through that because the unique combination here is that 
We've got uh, a general interest EMBA in New York. We've got something focused in the healthcare sector. We've got something that's a unique and leading program in China. And then this, this America's program serving the Americas. And I, I just, I, I see that as a, as a, a pretty special and unique uh, roster of great EMBA programs. Now, when you, when you think about what's the spine that relates all these together, there's a couple things that I'd shout out, and then I'd, I'd maybe ask my colleague, Manoj, if, if there's anything he wants to add in. One is that in all of these programs, we have a team-based learning approach that we think is, is really, really important. And, and by that, I mean that we have students that, of course, they're, they're performing individually, but they're also on small teams. They're coached, they're assessed, they're given feedback. Uh, so, you know, we think of business as a team sport and the ability of these executives to deliver exceptionally well in that context, I think is really important. And so we're very intentional about how we, we go about that approach. It's, it is the case that in all of these programs, the students are working on, on problems that they're addressing at work right now, so they're able to put it into practice. Um, and, and we think that team-based approach is, is, is uh, really key. And I guess the other thing that, that is uh, unique, not only about the MBA programs, but about Cornell, is that we have our Cornell Tech campus in New York City. So we are based in Ithaca, New York, but what a lot of people don't realize is that we won the opportunity from then Mayor Bloomberg to create a new tech-based campus in the heart of New York City and uh, have done so. And so we have two of our programs, Metro and Healthcare Leadership, based uh, at the Cornell Tech campus. And all of our programs end up having residential sessions there. So to be able to offer programming at a campus that's that's been built from scratch in the last 10 years, that's very, very forward-focused and future-focused on the digital economy. That's that's pretty unique and special, and we're, we're very proud of that. That's great. Uh, Dr. Thomas, do you want to add something? I think uh, Mark covered it um, very well. I'll just reiterate what he said. I think what really makes our suite of MBA programs, EMBA programs unique is, first, that I cannot think of any other top-tier university offering so many distinctive options for students, depending on the specific needs. So that's one thing that really makes it unique. And the other thing is that we have we realized quite early on that exec MBAs in general, but executive MBAs in particular, they need not just to learn the skills, but they need the transformation of behavior behaviors. They want to evolve as individuals, as people. And we've created a pedagogy that does both. How? So as Mark talked about that, so um, so we are an Ivy League institution. You come to our program and we'll teach you microeconomics and macroeconomics and we'll teach you regressions. We'll teach you accounting and we'll teach you finance and marketing. And unless you know all of these things pretty well, you'll not be able to graduate from our program. So that's right. how you get the skills. Uh, the behavioral transformation comes from our team-based learning. So over time, they start learning that they not only have to do well individually in these courses, but there are lots of team assignments and they are intentional, they are designed, keeping in mind that there will be a behavioral learning here where they'll get feedback from team members about their biases, about their preconceptions and how they can be more effective team players. And all of that is a part of our curriculum. So that's how we blend both of these goals and meet both of these goals. And I think that's one of the things that makes us different from other programs, as far as I know. Can I jump in real quick? Sure, I, of I just, course, anytime. I, I just wanted to add that that 
you know, the process by which this happens is is very carefully sort of thought out, right? So we we have a leadership framework that we created at Cornell that we, we call it the four C's where we've got competence and character and compassion and courage. And we, we, we talk about what each of those means and what those skills are. But when we're when we're talking about people operating in a group, the real key is, you know, you give some instruction, but then they they apply it and then they get very specific feedback. And, you know, rinse and repeat, you keep, you keep doing that and, and working on each person's individual uh, weaknesses and, and helping them be stronger. Uh, th this relates to diversity and inclusion. This relates to, to harnessing the power of the group and uh, being able to, to identify the complementarities that, that make a group stronger. So it, 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 we've got uh, people who are absolute specialists in this that are, that are team coaches and team advisors, and, and that's a spine that runs through the program. That's very specific. It's not just general teamwork. They're getting feedback on how they're, they're, the nature of their participation. Yeah, yeah. I think it's true because oftentimes people will throw folks into teams and then they'll throw them in another team. And then they'll throw them in another team. Right. And uh, that's actually not teaching them. That's having them work in teams. And so- uh, fall on their face and learn right. from falling on their face. Exactly. Uh, right. Now, you obviously executive MBA programs are or almost all executive MBA programs are part-time programs. So when you're talking about working in teams, you're talking about people who also have usually full-time or almost full-time responsibilities. I mean, how do they navigate that? It's uh, probably a little bit more complicated than with the full-time program. That's a great question. I, I'm happy to take that um, question. I think I teach in the program and I didn't really have an appreciation of how much our students have to go through until I started tracking them very closely. And I, to your point, Linda, I realized that the behavioral transformation happens because, as you said, they have very busy life. They have their careers. They have their families. Some of them have small kids. Some right. of them have parents at home. And then they are ambitious and they sign up for this uh, rigorous MBA program. And what really makes them committed to the pedagogical goals is the fact that they're learning as a team. And this is, let me kind of illustrate with an anecdote. And it's not, I feel if I kind of encounter this quite frequently. Uh, sometimes, you know, we have student assignments and we have team, team assignments in all our courses and uh, individual assignments and team assignments. Sometimes the students, when they have to choose between doing extremely well on a team assignment versus an individual assignment, guess which one they focus more on? The team assignment. Because they feel they have this obligation to make sure the team performs well. And even if they have to kind of make a trade-off there, they focus on the team assignment. And I think that's the team structure kind of helps us enable the students to navigate all the conflicting demands in their lives, enable them to grow them in the program. Sounds like quite a culture and ethos there. Now, I know I was looking into this and it appears that Cornell's, or I should ask really, is Cornell's EMBA program the largest in the US and what advantage does that create or, or is it just that you have these different options? Is it something more than that? Which is a significant advantage, don't misunderstand me. I have to begin by saying that we don't know the exact number of enrollments in all schools, right? right the right. only source that we can rely on are third-party industry surveys. Right. So the most reliable source for us is MBAC, uh, which is uh, an independent body that surveys um, all EMBA programs. And they surveyed, uh, the latest survey, um, they surveyed 125 schools. And we looked at uh, the number of schools that are have like big programs. And there are 
um, seven such schools. Uh, when I looked at that, they are uh, Chicago, Columbia, Cornell, Duke, Sloan, UCLA, and Wharton. And then we looked at the total, the number of students enrolled, and I was uh, pleasantly surprised to see that uh, we uh, at, are at the top in terms of students, uh, whether or not we include our students in Beijing, even if we include our, even the students just in the US, we have the largest cohort of students uh, incoming in any year, at least in the year 2021, to our EMBA programs. Now, your second question is, how does that help us, right? Right. I think the most concrete is influence is that we learn from our mistakes and we share those learnings uh, as we start new programs or other programs. So we don't have to, each program doesn't have to commit its own mistakes to improve. It can learn from the mistakes that other people are committing uh, or other programs are committing. And, and that's, uh, and we learn from our strengths and we learn from our observations. So going back to the team-based learning, we started our team-based learning with our Cornell Americas program, which uses this distributed classrooms, And I can talk about that later. Uh, but we had to create team-based learning because the classrooms are distributed. They are not in Ithaca or in New York. They are spread all over the North Americas. And once we learned that, and once we realized the power of that pedagogical approach, we said, well, we have to roll that out to our EMBA Metro and our EMBA MS Healthcare. And our program directors wanted to, were very keen to embrace those because they saw the power of this pedagogical innovation. So, so that's the, I think the most important advantage is that we learn, we have this internal learning process. So, as an organization, we are improving because we have all these programs. The second one is more obvious and more straightforward. We have a pretty large network, which means that Cornell EMB alumni, whether they're in Chicago or in, or in Toronto or in Peru, and they'll have lots of other Cornell alumni that they can connect with. Great, wonderful, thank you. Dean Nelson, do you wanna to add to that? I, I really do. I think I, I agree wholeheartedly with what, what Manoj said. There's another thing that, that's maybe less apparent, but I think is really important. And that is, you'll look in, there, there may be some schools where the EMBA program is sort of a one-off and they have a focus on something else, but they also have an EMBA program. And, and it's, it's really critical to highlight, and, and, and Manoj alluded to this, but it, it takes a special skill set to teach EMBA students well. Uh, you're dealing with more experienced people. You're dealing with people who are are dealing with the the, the strategic issues you might be be covering on a, on a daily basis. And and while Linda, you're you're dead on that they're very busy people. The other thing is that on a Saturday they're bringing in to the classroom what happened at work on Friday, and they're looking to apply it on Monday. And learning as a faculty member to draw on the incredible experience in that class and on the immediacy of them putting their education to, to work. You're, you're sort of a, of a conductor of a symphony uh, more than you are uh, you know, playing your own instrument. It's always that case, I think, when you're dealing with graduate students, but it's even more so for EMBA students. So if we have four programs with uh, somewhat different clientele and modalities, but they're all focused on EMBAs. What that means is that we have a deeper bench of faculty. We have deeper expertise of faculty that we can bring to bear on this, this really important, but somewhat distinctive student population. Thank you very much for that. Fascinating. Now, we've kind of danced around this topic, and but you both touched on it, and it's called uh, distributed classroom. What is a distributed classroom? 
and how does it contribute to the Cornell EMBA options? And I don't know who wants to take that first. You both touched on it. You're both obviously very proud of it. So um, how about, I, I would say Manoj because Manoj is teaching actively uh, using this approach and, and he, can, uh, he can describe what it's like as a faculty member as well as more conceptually. Okay. Happy to, yeah. Yeah, I think I, we're quite proud of this. And I, I have to admit that uh, we started off this concept in 2005. We did not realize that this is going to become so big and powerful. We did not anticipate a pandemic uh, 15 years down the line and everybody going hybrid and online. But we started off in 2005 in a partnership, uh, our partnership with the Queen's University. And actually, they are the ones who were the pioneers who had this idea. And so we were looking to, we started our EMBA program in New York City, and we were looking to take this, what we believe is a pretty strong EMBA program to the rest of the country. And so were Queens, and we thought that we should partner with them. And we created a program spanning um, all of America's, North and South America, mm -hmm. 20 locations. Mm -hmm. And the problem that we faced was the following is, you know, it's not like teaching engineering or a math class or a chemistry class right, where you can look at the class slides, take notes or read books and learn. In, in a business class, it's very important to interact. It's very important for people to debate and thrash out ideas and question and challenge. How do we create that environment? And this is more so for executive MBA because there's a wealth of experience, Linda, in, the, in each classroom. So how do we create that? So people, our colleagues who are running this program at that time, had this uh, very powerful idea of creating classrooms, physical class classrooms in each locations. So we have 20 such small physical classrooms. You can accommodate 10, 15 students. Students physically go into those classrooms every weekend. They spend um, eight hours there, starting at 8 a.m. Uh, in respective time zones. And the faculty either go to a studio in Cornell or our partner institution, and we have a studio which is pretty much like a television studio. If you ever happen to be in Ithaca, I'd be happy to give you a tour of that studio. Okay. Uh, we go in there and we are like, you know, we have uh, colleagues helping us beam our content. And we see all the students on a big, large, huge wall in front of us. And I can then say, Ron in uh, Toronto, what do you think of what Lisa just said in Dallas? And, and then I can turn to someone in uh, Seattle and say, okay, so which, who do you think is correct? And they can all interact with each other. So what we've done is we've created this, this structure where we can recreate an MBA classroom by recreating the peer-to-peer -peer interactions. And at the same time, we can distribute it across multiple locations. This is very different from what many other institutions currently, the way they currently think of online education, they think of a you know, a Zoom room, putting people in Zoom rooms, et cetera. We also have those kind of approaches, but I think that the foundation of our uh, the Americas program is this concept of distributed classrooms. I think it's a marvelous pedagogical innovation that has helped us roll out our MBA to uh, many far-flung places. So it's, yeah. it's almost a combination of small groups and, and online. And yeah. Dr. Nelson, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you can tell I'm, I'm excited about this too. Uh, there, there, there are a couple things to add to this. Uh, Manoj gave a, a, a wonderful explanation. Uh, the first might, might only, uh, this, this metaphor might only work for people of a, of a certain generation, but there, there used to be a sitcom called Frasier. And Frasier was a, a psychologist on the radio. And he had someone in the control room named Roz. 
And Roz would sort of orchestrate what was happening while Frazier was sort of the talent on the, on the line. And, and one of the things that is really powerful about this approach is that there is a Roz in addition to the, the faculty member, there's a control room. So when what, what Manoj uh, didn't say was when he calls on Ron in Toronto, the, uh, the person in the control room pops up a record of what Ron's doing, uh, what's his background, how does he tie in? There are opportunities for, for that controller to collaborate with the faculty member in terms of how they're, they're offering you know, uh, ways that students in this distributed format can be uh, providing polls and votes and input in a variety of ways. So, you know, before I saw this, I sort of thought of, of a distributed environment as being, you know, how close to a real, you know, face-to-face -face classroom can you get? And what I didn't realize that in some ways you have an augmented capability, unique capability. And that's really interesting. Uh, and once again, it takes work to know how to harness that well. It takes the infrastructure and the talent and the team. But from a faculty member perspective, you know, you have to you have to learn to do that extraordinarily well. And uh, that's that's part of the investment that we've made in the in the structure. Yeah, I just want to echo what uh, Mark said. It's, it's it's wonderful. Yeah, my colleagues Todd and Steve, uh, who are always behind the scene, and in fact, many times I turn to them and ask them which boardroom do you think I should ask this question to? And they'll tell me which boardroom is kind of just poised to answer that question. Yeah, it kind of augments our teaching skills being in that in that structure. Fascinating, really, really interesting. Because I was I was reading about it online. I'm like, what is it? Is it is it hybrid? Is it you know online? But it's it's really a combination. Now, do the students who let's say attend in Dallas versus the students who attend in Chicago or Boston or wherever they are, or Florida, do they like have group projects? Do they get together socially? Do they become a, a cohort? Yes, and they, they get very tight. Uh, so they'll, they'll do group projects together and they'll be uh, socializing together, but they're also, as, as Manoj was saying, they're relying on each other. Sure. And uh, so they, they become uh, extremely close. The, the other thing that's, that's interesting, I guess two other things about this format that I just find so intriguing. One is that you know we'll we'll allow students to do a weekend in another town, and so there there are some people who just sort of have this bucket list of saying I'm going to go to every one of these boardrooms at one point or another, and I'm going to join there because they, they all know each other, they see each other, sure. and interacting both online and also when we do residential sessions. So so you know the idea of someone from Mexico City. Uh, popping up to Seattle and being hosted, uh, it's they 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 really enjoy that. But, but and I the assume there's thing. also like forums for interaction midweek. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. But but another thing that's interesting and that maybe isn't immediately apparent is that I, I mean you really really benefit from each other in in an executive MBA classroom. You certainly do in a, in a residential MBA classroom, but even more so from an executive because they've got so much to share. And, and, and what's better yet is, is imagine that you're doing a case and you're asking people's perspectives and one person's in Santiago, Chile, and another's in Monterrey, Mexico, and another's in New York City, and another, you know, is in the Bay Area. And, and they're not only from a different place. I mean, in our residential program, we have 43 countries represented. Right. 
right. not only from a different place, they're in a different place. Yeah. And, and they can talk about how right now that that cultural challenge might be addressed in their particular settings. And so to have that simultaneity of, of diversity, of background, is it's just really unique. And I think it's, a, it's an unsung learning advantage of this approach. So that's basically how Cornell combines remote learning technology and in-person learning. Do, do the cohorts, does any individual cohort ever get together with, with the rest of its cohorts? And do the cohorts ever meet? All together? Yeah. We have residential sessions where they'll come to the Ithaca campus. They'll come to our Cornell Tech campus, our, our partner university, Queens. Uh, and I mean, it's like a huge family reunion when this happens, right? Because everyone knows each other. And uh, it, they, they, they not only interact during the day in the classroom, but it, I think the, the bar scene in Ithaca benefits from their parent, their presence, right? I mean, they, they get out and they socialize a lot with each other and uh, they're excited to do so. I'll just add to what Mark said. Sure. I talked to somebody who was in our first class, 2005, who graduated from the first class and I asked them, what is it that you really take away, like remember even now from the program that you attended yeah. in 2005? And he said, my classmates, my board, board roommates, and they said, we're still in touch. We still meet. So part of it is, as you I think, quite astutely pointed out at the beginning, it's a very rigorous program because they have conflicting demands. And now they're put in a team. They are accountable for the team uh, because many a time they are leading the team project and they kind of rotate in that, in that roles. So And they get to know each other very well, right? Extremely well. They get to know each other's family problems, so they can help each other and all of that. Now they're seeing other teams online right. and now they're curious to meet the team in Toronto or to meet the team in Calgary or meet the team in Boston. And, 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 and like Mark said, then there are these residential sessions that happens uh, twice a year. And they come to Ithaca or they go to a Cornell Tech campus and they're like, oh yeah. So finally we get to meet the people <laughs> in Boston and we finally get to meet the people in, in Monterey and, and, and they bond there. So it's, I think it's a wonderful structure. What do what do most people not realize about Cornell's Ember programs or options, I should say, that you would like them to know? And are there any misconceptions or myths that you would like to dispel? Uh, I'll I'll say a couple uh, okay. and then invite Manoj to jump in. Um, so so first off, there are some things that I think they just automatically expect. You know, they they know Cornell University and the Ivy League school, and, and they they anticipate that it's going to be high quality and rigorous. And it, it definitely is. I think the, the the team approach that we were describing is something that people probably don't realize to the extent that they that they could. The amazing diversity of students in these classes, both in uh, depending on the particular program, geographic location. Uh, functional orientation. In our healthcare leadership program, half of the program uh, consists of clinicians, uh, but the other half are people from the healthcare sector really broadly defined. So they're healthcare implement manufacturers and consultants and pharmaceutical, biotech, you know. Uh, so, so that diversity of, of functional discipline and orientation, it, it takes them only a little while to realize just how much they have to draw upon and to learn from. Uh, so all of that, I think, is true. What people maybe don't know, I don't know if I'm dissuading or informing at this point, but sometimes people have the image of an institution of, of Cornell standing as, as 
full of a bunch of, of uh, stuffy people who uh, aren't approachable and aren't warm and aren't caring and aren't supportive. And uh, it's very, very much the opposite. So the, the whole, you, you go back to the, the motto of Cornell, any person, any study, the idea of being welcoming and, and embracing and supportive. Every, everyone's ambitious, everyone's driven, but it's not cutthroat. It's exactly the opposite. And uh, that then leads to the power of the Cornell network uh, after they graduate. And, and it's sort of like the, you know, the rings of an onion or whatever, where you, you, you start maybe with your, your team and then your cohort and your class and your program, uh, your year, but it doesn't take long before you're talking about the Cornell University network of well over 250,000 people. And they're all, we talk about bleeding Cornell red, huh? and they're, 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 they're sort of part of your network. Uh, there's this line about Cornell that we're elite, but not elitist. And I think that's really important for people to understand. They're joining a family and it's a it's an accomplished family, but it's a very supportive and close family. And, and that makes that makes the process fun and uh, affirming and special. Wonderful. Well, things um, can I add, Linda, and in sure. terms of the more I want to just touch on, I agree with all that marks and I want to touch on a couple of concrete things. I was talking to somebody on in the on the West Coast, and this person was telling me that. Um, this person is working in a good company, technology company, and saying, I want to do an MBA, EMBA, but you know, from a place like Cornell, but I can't travel. I don't have time to travel. And that's the first myth I'd like to bust. I, if anybody is listening to the program, I want you to know that you don't have to travel to Ithaca or New York to get a Cornell EMBA. You can be in Seattle. You can be in San Jose. You can be in Los Angeles. And you can stay there and without quitting your job you can get a Cornell, an Ivy League Cornell EMBA. That's the first thing. And when I told this person this, they said, oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. I probably would like to enroll. And then he's thought about this and said, oh, but I'll have to take a GMAT. I said, no, nope. uh, the GMAT is, uh, you know, usually required for your regular MBAs. But if you're an ex applying for an executive MBA program, we look at your profile. We need certain experience. We need 15 years experience. We need you to have some management experience, leadership experience. But if you can, if you have those, and you, we need you to have an undergraduate degree that um, enables you to attend and respond to rigorous courses. But if you meet those benchmarks, we know that you are very busy working executives. So we're not going to um, ask you to take a bunch of time preparing for tests. Uh, we don't need to do that because we have enough information from your credential to evaluate your preparedness for a program. So those are the two things I'd like all prospective applicants to know, even if you are in, in, in Canada or anywhere in any part of the US, uh, you have access to a Cornell EMBA program. And uh, we made it easy for you to complete your EMBA without quitting your jobs and without having to take too many leaves, et cetera. And the bonus that you get is that you'll get some lifelong friends. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and can I, sorry, Go one, one other thing that, that just you know, sparked something in my mind. Something I want to make sure people don't do, don't psych yourself out. Don't think you can't do this. One of the things we have, we have a pre-assessment process where we ask people to uh, just reach out to our admissions folks and talk to them. 
it, it's applying to an EMBA program is very different than what people have in mind maybe when they applied for undergrad, where they they you know filled out this common app and mailed it and and sat there nervously for four months wondering whether anything's going to happen. You know, with the, with an EMBA program, it's 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 a lot more almost like executive placement. I mean, you're 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 talking with busy people, with uh, accomplished and uh, people that you know they don't want to waste their time. We don't want to waste their time. So early on in the process, we'll talk about what our programs are like. We'll help people understand which program is best for them. We'll walk them through the process. And if there was some reason why we didn't think someone was a fit for any of these programs, we tell them. So we're not we're not wanting to waste their time. Instead, we're, we're wanting to help them through this process, just as we'll help them through their EMBA. Sometimes I'll, I'll talk to people and they'll say, oh, I never applied, I can never get in. It's like, well, how do you know if you don't talk to us? We promise we won't lead you on. We won't waste your time. But give yourself the opportunity to be considered because it could be a life-changing opportunity. Sure. I have follow-up questions for both of you. Dr. Thomas, what are the cities where the distributed classrooms are located? So on the East Coast, we have Ithaca, New York, Boston, and D.C. Then we have Seattle, L.A., um, San Jose, San Francisco. Uh, we have Dallas and Houston. And then we have 10 other cities in Canada. And, oh, and we have Monterey and Lima. Santiago, Mexico City. I'll jump in. That's just for the Americas, or is that for... For Americas, we have, uh, we have our Metro EMBA program, which is based in New York City. So if you are from the Northeast, and if you really are passionate about being a part of the business community in New York City or in the tri-state area, then we would say that you should go to the Metro EMBA um, program, which operates out of Cornell Tech, which is a state-of-the-art campus for business school. Um, but it, it also has a distributed classroom or it doesn't it have doesn't a it, that's based only in New York City. Got it. Mm -hmm. and I, I think I should, I, I don't know if it's the right time or not. I also want to talk about the other program, which is our EMBA MS program. That's mm -hmm. also based in New York City. And that's a very unique program of its kind. I don't know whether this is the right time or you want me to. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, as you might know, Linda, um, one of the sectors that is booming a lot in the US and the rest of the world is healthcare. Of course. There is a lot of need for people who are trained in management skills uh, in the healthcare sector. And so many of the business schools have been creating specialized tracks for healthcare MBA. What we've created, I think is truly unique. I mean, uh, so it's not just a healthcare track. We come up with a dual degree program where students get an MBA and they get an MS from a reputed medical school, which is while, and they are taught, co-taught, Half the courses are taught by business school professionals are um, Ivy League professors teaching MBA programs, and half of them are taught by faculty who are clinicians or professors from the medical school. Right. Uh, this is a program that is completely unique, and um, it's, it's, uh, it's only five years old. And I, I'm optimistic in 10 years from now, uh, when we have brilliant doctor physicians and um, healthcare professionals all over the country looking for the best healthcare program in the country. I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful that they'll they'll turn to us. Sounds like that. Certainly, the reputation of the teaching institutions should make them turn to you, for sure. And then my follow up question for, but thank you, thank you, Dr. Thomas, for Dean Nelson is, 
the, can you tell us a little bit more about the pre-assessment? I mean, is it just a, a telephone conversation? Is it a form that they fill out? Is there a fee for the pre-assessment? Um, there's a, there's a, a bit of form as well as a conversation that people will have really quickly in the process. Yeah. Uh, the idea is to just get just it's just the starting bare bones amount of information for for us to be able to help someone to triage uh, and then from there uh, you know we're we're moving on to to walk them through the the process itself when you're submitting a pre-assessment we could pop that up something too it's it's before you're entering the formal application process it's before you have to have any kind of an application fee uh, it's just designed to get you started and uh, you know it, it's a it's a very small amount of information before you're having a, a a conversation with an admissions expert that's that's there to answer any question that you might have. Can I just add um, to that? A um, couple of it's, it's as, as Mark said, it's, it's very very short, and we have basically two goals in this. One is we want to tell them, like as Mark said earlier, if the students are not appropriate or suitable for an EMBA program. We want to tell you early on that, okay, this is probably not the best program for you. And we'll guide them to other programs or give them that feedback. That's the first step. So it's very easy. Just give them your, just fill in your name and give in your LinkedIn profile. And then you basically have a conversation. Someone tells you that, well, you are the right kind of person who should apply or you should not apply. Now, if you are the kind of person who should apply, then our admissions officers will work with them to help them complete the application process and, and guide them through the application process. So the pre-assessment serves those two kinds of goals, which are, I think, very important. All right, great, thank you. Now you mentioned, uh, Dr. Thomas, that Cornell, that the, the test, whether it's a GMAT, the GRE, or the EA, is strictly optional at Cornell Johnson. Number one, who should take the test if anybody should? And do you have any preference among those tests? I'm not quite sure why. If you if you really want to see where you rank amongst all the other students, and if you have that need, I think you should take the test. Uh, I think typically people take the GMAT. I took the GMAT a long, long time ago, and I su suspect most business school students who are applying to um, do MBA program, they take the GMAT. I mean, if it's not used at all, then I don't say anything. there's no point in it. There's absolutely no point in it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah we, I, I, sorry, yeah. sorry I, I just jump in and say, it's, they don't need to be submitting uh, a test score if they've done it and it's a wonderful score, then go ahead and submit it because yeah. why not show something wonderful? Good, that yeah. But but it's not a barrier. And, yeah. and, and I want to go back to something that Manoj was saying earlier, which is, you know, when you're dealing with someone who's 35, 40 years old and they've, they've already got a record of accomplishment, it's a little silly to try to judge them based on a standardized test score or based on their undergraduate grade point. You know, it's what have you done for the last 10, 15 years? And that's right. that's the real track record. And so it, it makes sense that the 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 less experienced uh, the, the target audience of a program is, the more things like tests and undergraduate, you know, performance and stuff matter because it's, you got less else to go on. But but at this point, we're really we're, we're, we're looking to bring in people who are already successful and already leaders and, and to just uh, accelerate their trajectory, you know, uh, make them uh, that much stronger and able to go that much farther. What if somebody has a, 
you know, they, for whatever reason, they blew off undergraduate. They had a tough time. They have a, a really poor GPA. They have a 2.5 GPA, yeah. um, but they have excellent work experience. They've really accomplished a lot once they got out of school. Do they have a chance? I'm, I'm very glad that you asked that question because I just want to, I, I think all the applicants should get the correct picture here. So our program is quite rigorous. Right. So they had to do quantitative analysis, they have to do uh, strategic analysis, uh, they have to have soft skills and hard skills. So um, we do require a certain level of competence on the part of, um, of applicants as they are applying. And the, the, the only point is, how do we assess that? As Mark said, for us, it's not an entrance exam that helps us assess it. It's the performance, past academic performance, and their track record in the industry. And when I talk to my colleagues in admissions, uh, what do you look for? And they've said, they, many times they've said, no, this person looks really good on paper. And in fact, this person also has very good academic track record. But I don't think this person will be able to contribute to the team in a team discussion. So I don't think this person is a good fit. So that's the, that's the approach that we take. If um, your question is more specific and probably best answered by one of my colleagues in the admissions office, but my suspicion is their answer would be something like this. They'll say that if a person has got really weak undergraduate track record, then they most likely would be guided to take some courses or show some evidence for some kind of, uh, you know, the ability to take and uh, perform better in the classroom. Yeah, and it, I, I've, I've actually run into this situation before and, and people grow and change. Oh, yes. um, I don't know about how you think about when you were an undergraduate, but I personally am grateful that I've grown and changed since those days, you know? <laughs> thank, thank my, my husband you. likes to say, my husband likes to say, he says, I've never met anybody who feels they were smarter five years ago than today. Thank goodness, right? You know, right, right. And and, and some people have have more to go uh, when they're eighteen than others, or at a, at a different point in time. And so, it's just really, really important to know where they're at at the time that they're applying. And and so, part of what happens with pre-assessment is that uh, let's just say that someone has nothing in their background or their education to suggest that they would be comfortable dealing with. Uh, the more quantitative aspects of, of the program, they will recommend some training materials to help the person be prepared. Because the last thing we want to do is to have someone admitted and not, not be able to do the, the work and, and not have a, a great experience. So think of it as almost a diagnostic process in this admissions process. Um, and, and, you know, we'll look to see if there's a weakness in someone's background that they should address just to make sure they get the most out of the programming. But again, don't don't start off by saying, well, I got a 2.5 in undergrad, so there's no way Cornell would accept me. Let's have the conversation because it might be quite, quite possible that they'd be a tremendous person based on the trajectory of their career since they were an undergraduate. Right. Right. Great. This is for a question for both of you. If you are a potential applicant thinking ahead to an EMBA application and program, what is the one thing you would do to prepare yourself to apply? That's a Who very wants good to go question. first? Who wants to go first? I, uh, this is going to sound incredibly selfish because I am an accounting professor. Okay. <laughs> but one of the things, if someone has never ever, uh, and, and I'm looking really past the application process, 
Uh, if someone's never seen any kind of financial statements, financial information, anything of that nature, there are all of these different short courses or overviews or whatever. Just getting a little bit of the of the bare bones of accounting, I think is useful because then when you jump into an accounting class, you've, you've got some of that language, some of that right. syntax. Right. Um, but, you know, that's, again, I, I can't say that I'm not being self-serving in that because I am an accounting professor and I, and I love this stuff. So Dr. Thomas recommend a basic course in marketing, right? No, go, go ahead. <laughs> so uh, I just want to make sure, Linda, I, well, I would definitely recommend a basic course in marketing. Um, but uh, I just want to clarify, so did you say that after they get admitted or before they apply? Potential applicant. Yeah. A potential applicant. So mm -hmm. if, if somebody is thinking of applying for an M, to an MBA pro, EMBA program, I my recommendation would be get in touch with other EMBA students, understand the experience, understand whether this is for them, right? It's not for everybody. And the challenges. Uh, it, it's, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's time consuming. Uh, <laughs> uh, people go through... Uh, I mean, once you enroll in an EMBA program, I've heard people say that we kept our social life aside for two years because <laughs> yeah, yeah, all yeah. we do is work and study. And so you, you're giving up a lot for two years and you have to kind of make sure that you are in it because it's going to be valuable for you. So that's, my, that's going to be my advice. No, that's great. And I, I, I'd also add, if you're in a committed relationship, sit your partner down and say, okay, are yes. we in this together? Because at graduation, I always make sure to thank the partners and and to say congratulations to the both of you for getting your EMBA because it was a, it was a team effort at home as well as in the classroom. Sure. By the way, I was laughing when you were suggesting taking an accounting class because I was an undergrad. I, I have an MBA, but it was a full-time MBA, not an executive MBA. Mm -hmm. And um, I was a political science major. I took the minimum amount of math in college that I possibly could get away with. So when I was thinking of getting the MBA, and at the time you only needed one year of work experience, I took a, a math class, you know, to prepare myself and one accounting class. <laughs> so, because I felt I needed to know something about the language of business before I committed to this. And were you glad you did that? Yes, I was. I was very glad. There, there you go. <laughs> Proof positive. Absolutely. So I'm oh. sorry, Dr. Thomas, I did not take marketing at that point. That's okay. But, you did your marketing in your MBA program then. I you? did. I did. And I enjoyed it too. Let me ask you both. Is there anything you would have liked me to ask you that I haven't asked? Oh, boy. I'm asking tough been, questions. <laughs> no, this has been a wonderful conversation and a wonderful uh, uh, wide ranging conversation. Thank you. Um, I don't think so. I, I think if the if there's one thing I'd emphasize is something that that Manoj said right towards the end. Uh, the a really really good way to understand what a program is about once you've once you've talked to people in admissions is to say who are some students or some alumni that I could speak with, and uh, you know there you're you're talking to somebody who's been a customer. They've been part of the whole experience, and uh, they will give their own perspective. And certainly we would be happy and proud for people to speak with any of our current students or any of our alumni, uh, because we're looking for that alignment and that uh, excitement about being part of our community. And, and we think they'll, they'll convey that very well. Right. Dr. Yeah. Thomas, what do you want to ask? I what, think would you, you, what would you have liked me to ask you? I think you've asked all, um, all the great questions, Linda. I, <laughs> Thank you. I, I, the only thing I 
uh, you didn't ask maybe, you know, there are, yeah, I think I don't, I should just shut up. I think you No, go ahead. Go ahead. You had, you had something in mind. I think it's going to be good. <laughs> I, I, know, I know what he wishes you asked. I wish he, I think he wishes you asked him about his most recent book. And, um, I and wish what... you would talk to me about my research. And, and... <laughs> uh, no. Okay. What the... <laughs> I think you covered all the all the um, all the points that I would uh, have liked to cover. I think I just want to emphasize the behavioral transformation part of the EMBA program, along with the skill learning and uh, and the fact that you know there is an EMBA program which is um, specifically designed for people from different industries. Uh, different backgrounds. So I think you've covered all of that. And those are the things I would have liked to emphasize in this conversation. Wonderful. All right. Well, I want to thank both of you, Dean Nelson and Dr. Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been delightful. Where can listeners and potential applicants learn more about Cornell Johnson's EMBA programs? Well, let me see. The when Mark is looking up for the URL, I'll yeah. just say that um, I think you want to put in a plug for your book. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I will do that, but in addition, to that, I think we are. I think our marketing team uh, would spend. I do spend a lot of money on our, our digital assets and advertising. So if you do a Google search on Cornell EMBA, I think you will find lots of material on that. But I'm sure Mark is going to come up with something more concrete and specific. Well, if, if you, you know, johnson.cornell.edu backslash programs backslash EMBA. Sounds good. We're also going to link to it from exhibit.com slash 506, which is very easy to remember. <laughs> okay, so you'll find links to Cornell Johnson's EMBA programs at exhibit.com slash 506. And probably in Google too, thanks to all the advertising that Dr. Thomas does. And um, a final reminder, download your free copy of ACE the EMBA, Expert Advice for the Rising Executive from exhibit.com slash ACE EMBA, A-C-E-E-M-B-A. Listener, thank you too for joining Dean Mark Nelson and Dr. Manoj Thomas and me for our 506th episode. If you find the show worthwhile, please tell your applicant friends about it. Make sure you don't miss any future shows, be they with deans, directors, professors, current students, test prep pros, or alumni doing great things. Thanks again for coming. This is Admission Straight Talk, produced by Accepted, and I'm your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. 